Welcome to episode 87 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jinstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 87 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? Well, I'm doing great, but... I just had like the world's fastest cold that like came and went and it was like, (laughs) I am so happy for our intermittent fasting. Was it one of the sinus colds? Well, it was like, I was sneezing like crazy. Like I was fine. And then about midday, my nose started running and then I was like sneezing and I could just tell I was catching a cold and I could just feel it coming. And I started to get kind of tired and blah. And At that time, I was like, you know what would really make me feel better? Some soup. 
So I pulled out some of um, that bona fide. I had the butternut squash soup, and I heated that up, and I, I drank it, and then I like had like a really small dinner later, and then I went to bed, and I woke up the next day, and I was like perfectly fine. Like the cold never really, you know. I mean, I slept for like nine and a half hours. <laughs> oh my goodness! But yeah, but that um, that bona fide butternut squash soup was like the perfect thing, and I was so glad I had it in the freezer because it was like kind of a chilly day, and I just felt like my body was like have something with some broth in it. Anyways. It really was amazing because I used to get sick and I'd be sick like forever. Like I, it always would end up settling as like an ear infection. And I haven't had one of those since I started intermittent fasting for real in 2014 and really got serious with it. I have not had to go to the doctor for for anything like that. It's pretty amazing. Knock it out with intermittent yeah. fasting and bone broth for the win. There you go. <laughs> it really was. It, it made such a difference for me. Well, well, we are definitely all about optimizing health and digestion and everything. See what I did there? <laughs> yeah, I do. Because speaking of all of this, I'm not just here with Jen Stevens. We also have a very special guest today on the podcast, which people might be familiar with because we actually had him on the podcast a few episodes ago. We have Wade Lightheart on the podcast. Wade, thank you so much for coming back with us. Great to be here. Thank you. We had Wade on episode number 84, and it was a super fascinating conversation. We got into the nitty gritty of digestion from really from beginning to end. <laughs> and um, it's all appropriate because Wade is the co-founder of Bioptimizers, and they are a company that makes quite a few different supplements to really optimize your digestion, address digestive issues, optimize your gut microbiome, just so many things. And we didn't even get into all the topics we wanted to get to, and we also knew that listeners would probably have a lot of follow-up questions, which they did. So we decided to have Wade back on for part two. So thank you so much for being here again, Wade. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So to start things off, I was thinking we could start with one of the major topics I really wanted to get to on our first episode that we didn't get to, <laughs> and um, that is the topic of gluten. Because you guys have your you have your product gluten guardian to help out with that, but I thought that we could just get into that topic, um, discuss how gluten and other things like casein, for example, how they affect digestion, how they affect the gut lining. I think there are so many questions around gluten because it can seem in a way like a fad because it's like so popular, like gluten free is like such a thing, and I think people wonder you know, does it really affect everybody negatively? Do we need to worry about gluten? Gluten. <laughs> Would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Sure. This is a this is a fascinating topic, and I think it goes deeper than people might have thought originally. And let, let me go backwards in time and, and share with people how we got to this place. And because I think sometimes we look at things in the very narrow present, but we don't actually understand the historical components of how we got here. So let me explain this real quick for your listeners so they can kind of take a little journey of how we got to this point. So if you look throughout history for hundreds of years, you know, particularly in European and Middle Eastern cultures and stuff, they've lived uh, on a diet of bread for a long period of time and gluten products. And what was interesting in, in the United States in, in, in around the turn of the century, around the 1900s, there was uh, the U.S. Congress met and was concerned about the protein degradation of wheat. At the time, wheat was about 90% protein, if you can believe that. And then what's happened is the growing conditions in the United States because uh, that, that evolved through monoculture, processing, genetic modification, uh, mineral deficient soils, the protein content of food, and, and this is, I think, across all different types of food, which is a whole other topic, but we're just going to talk about because wheat and, and these type of products that contain gluten are, are a big component of our dietary habits as a culture. It started to diminish, and what happens is if you grow a food on a mineral-deficient soil, it'll give up its protein, convert it into enzymes to continue to grow the plant. And over time, the not only does the mineral content of that food diminish, but the enzyme content of that food diminishes, and the protein content of that food diminishes. So what ends up happening is you eat more and get less. 
Okay, so you, there's an overconsumption of calories and a decrease of consumption of nutrients. Now, also on top of that, in original farmers, they used to they used to cycle the lands. They would take one year off of the culture, like you wouldn't grow that product, and the next year you'd grow a different product, and then you usually had like seven different crops that you would rotate, and you would take hemp. And you would grow on the ground and then you would toil, to- turn that back into the soil because it reconditions the soil. It's, and, and then, of course, hemp got outlawed, which is now kind of making a comeback. The American Constitution was written on hemp paper. The Mayflower had you know hemp ropes and hemp sails. It's very fascinating. And that got eliminated because of the cotton industry wanted to take over the textile industry. And so that got banned. And then that stopped being used in farming practices to recondition the soil. We moved after World War II. Uh, we started using uh, nitrogen that was left over from weapons manufacturing and using that to accelerate the growth on uh, farms, especially because mineral content, which further accelerated the degradation of protein and enzymes. And so what you have left is food products that have been modified significantly from their original forms. Now, gluten, particularly, if you've ever seen a baseball that's had the cover ripped open, you know, and you kind of see all the thread inside. Gluten would be the protein coating on the outside of that. That would be like the leather on the outside. This is very hard to digest and break down. And most of the population, if not all the population, do not have the bacteria cultures or the enzyme producing capacity to break down that coating. So they're not able to absorb and utilize the protein from that food. And most people think of bread or, or gluten products or all the associated products with that as a carbohydrate, but it's actually the inflammatory part is the protein. And so this is where people run into problems. So, uh, and on top of that, you have the additions of glyphosates, uh, herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides, which further alter our microbiomes, further uh, alter our ability to utilize those foods and also affect our digestive capacity. So what gluten is kind of the linchpin to a historical component of all these things that have kind of come in, and gluten is kind of like the, the poster boy of the problem. And it's true But there's a host of other things behind it. And it's one of the reasons why looking at your digestive capabilities is so essential if you want to be healthy, if you want to have an optimal weight, if you want to live disease free. But going back to that case is, well, how do we break down gluten? Because it's almost impossible to eliminate gluten from your diet. Anybody that's on a gluten free diet would understand this. It is very difficult. If you go out to a social setting, family environment, you go out to a restaurant, I mean, Gluten can be contained in wine, it can be in mustard, it can be in soya products, there's cross-contamination, so the further sensitivity you are on it, the more problems you tend to have. And I would range people on a sensitivity less from, let's say, 0 to 10. Everybody has a certain amount of sensitivity to gluten. Like, virtually everybody has difficulty digesting it, if not the inability to break this down. People on the extreme side would be people at the celiacs and, and, and things like that, which, you know, they take it. It's like razor blades in their stomach or something, you know, with that it's that intensity. And that is I always say that people, when they've gotten to that point, it's their body is sending up signals like just stop eating this stuff. But the question is, how do you survive in life being it's so gluten contaminated? It's so part of our social culture. It's so part of our food uh, processes and 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 it can be very compromising so what we did is we looked at well how can we possibly break this down how do we deal with life as it is today how do we deal with the environment conditions today because it's almost impossible to eat a perfect diet it's almost impossible to eliminate it and we found that there is a particular enzyme called dipeptidyl peptidase 4 the easy way to say that is dpp4 And this is an enzyme that is specific that will actually break down that cover. So if you put that on gluten, it'll actually break it down. We actually do a a video on our website where my co-founder of the company, Matt, uh, throws a loaf, uh, he throws a a biscuit or bread right in a a container of of, uh, vinegar, just like kind of your digestive system. And he throws in some gluten guardians in it, which contain the highest amount of DPP-4 that you can get uh, without a prescription. And you watch the bread dissolve right there, and you actually see it breaking down. People who suffer from gluten intolerance, that food is not breaking down in their body. And any food that doesn't break down in your body 
now becomes a potential toxin, now becomes something that can feed bad bacteria. As you'll see, there's so many women who are suffering, for example, from yeast infections and stuff, and often that could be traced to uh, a gluten intolerance, which now exaggerates because uh, you know bad bacteria come in and start feeding off that, and then whether it's sugar or gluten or an inflammatory protein, they'll grow off that and then cause all sorts of other uh, issues. So um, we decided, hey, we want to fix this area. We feel for people that are suffering from that. Bread's a big part of my family. I'm, my mom is undefeated in bread making. She's a championship bread maker. And she's like this little lady, tiny lady. She's in her 70s, you know, and she's really cute. And she brings out these fresh rolls and everything. Like, forget it. You, you, you're going to eat them. I haven't seen anybody, you know, gluten. And my whole family is like gluten intolerant. They all swell up from bread. They don't care. They just keep eating it anyways. And uh, so I did a little test when I made this product. I said, you know, your family will never do anything that you advocate, right? But I said, hey, mom, I got this I got this new product. I want you to try it. Didn't tell her what it was, whatever. She ate it, has her normal, she has bread every meal, okay? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, toast for breakfast, rolls for lunch, you know, that sort of the biscuits at dinner time, at supper. So literally, she comes down from downstairs the next morning after I gave it to her, and she goes, I don't know what you put in those capsules. She goes, but I woke up this morning and my belly was flatter. <laughs> and, so, and so to me, that was my favorite testimonial of all time because she, who was not necessarily aware that she has a certain level of gluten intolerance or whatever, I was aware, I, could, I can tell just by looking at her, she was able to make this change and without knowing anything, felt a difference. And uh, since that time, we have so many people who are, you know, terrified of social occasions or really compromised that are out there and they're using this and they're going, wow, this, this actually makes a major difference in my life. That's great. Yeah, your mom sounds fabulous. I would love her. I would like for her to give me bread making lessons because <laughs> I, I think I should do a film uh, 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 on her because she, uh, she 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 uses as a she says it's one thing to relieve stress, kneading the bread, right? And she's famous for it. She takes her rolls everywhere she goes, and everybody loves her. <laughs> it's really fun. Oh yeah, you know she. Well, I've just started popular. milling my own wheat. So. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. That's too Oh, uh, yeah. I got my, my grain mill. And so, yeah, I'm making homemade bread. And anyway, but I, I'm still working on it. <laughs> it's a lot different with the milled wheat than it is with um, store-bought flour. Yeah. And again, there's all these different grains. You can go to ancient grains, which you have the problems. Things that have been al- haven't been altered, as we said, over that, particularly the last hundred years. Um, what we're eating as far as bread is very different than, say, what our ancestors did. With the evolution of gluten, like the ancient grains and the way they used to prepare things, has gluten become more like resilient and hardy? Like, is it more of a problem now because of that genetic engineering or like, why is it more of a problem today? Again, I believe it's a combination of thing. I think it's a combination of the, 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 the evolution of the, the product itself, the, what we are using for grains, the alteration, genetic modification is definitely something I think has contributed. I think also most people today are dealing with the compromised digestion and don't, don't even know it. Um, they're just, they've lived their whole lives that way. And we're getting generational deficiencies passed on from our parents and our ancestors. And going back to our earlier podcast, we talked about uh, Dr. Edward Howe, who was kind of the pioneer of of enzyme philosophy, he wrote a book called uh, Enzyme Nutrition and Enzymes for Health and Longevity. He, he did all kinds of experience, experiments where he fed uh, different species, enzyme deficient diets, and he put them on, uh, you know, ones with enzymes and then, he, you know, raw food diets and then uh, enzyme supplemented diets. And the evidence was very clear that the animals by the third generation who had enzyme enzymatically deficient diets, they lost the ability to procreate. They had a weird uh, social behaviors, unusual social behaviors, and they had a high rate of genetic diseases. Well, let's look at the population today. Look how many, um, you know, fertility clinics are popping up all over the place. Look at the explosion of genetic-based diseases that are happening. And look at the, the rates of obesity, which are skyrocketing. And 
I believe that they're skyrocketing not because of people are eating too much, is people are deficient in the things that they need. And so they overconsume trying to get these deficient nutrients. And that's the product of uh, our industrial production of food. And I'm not there to condemn the industry. It's just kind of like an, you know, starvation was the biggest issue in humanity for all of humanity. You're not having enough food. Now we're dealing with this, the diseases of civilization. So we solved the starvation issue. We haven't solved the optimal digestion issue because we've developed other problems with solving one problem. You find out about other problems. That's just the way things go. So uh, we're we're on the cutting edge of now changing that with testing on digestive health and you know microbiome testing and all these things that are so becoming so available for people who are really concerned about their health. Exactly. This is a perfect topic for our podcast because I guess you don't know this, but gluten and <laughs> all the things that's like the one topic Jen and I often get into very interesting conversations about because we have Jen who's the the bread maker, literally making, <laughs> making our bread. And then I'm like, like not terrified of gluten, but very gluten free. And in my book, I go into lots of details about how gluten affects digestion and the system. So it's always a very interesting topic to discuss. And we love hearing the the science and the history behind all of it for sure. We actually have a question that came in from Michelle and her question is about Gluten Guardian, that product that you have. And she says, I just finished episode 84 and I have a question for Wade when he comes back on the podcast. I'm gluten intolerant with irritable bowel syndrome and I'm wondering if taking gluten guardian would allow me to be able to consume gluten containing food like bread or cake in the same amounts and with the same frequency as a quote normal person without my usual symptoms of abdominal pain, bloating and diarrhea. Can Wade please explain more about how the mechanism of gluten guardian action would prevent sensitivity symptoms, whether my body is breaking gluten down on its own or whether I am taking exogenous enzymes? Won't the end product still be the same? So won't I still have the same sensitivity to wheat products? Thanks, ladies, for the awesome podcast. So a few questions in there from Michelle. Yeah, and I'll see if I can unpack all of them at once. So if I miss something, uh, please re-ask me. Um, I think it's really important to understand. I'm going to back the truck up a little bit. The suggested dosage that we suggest is three capsules per meal, or you would take it before you would eat a meal, or if you were going out to an environment or things like that. And that's to make sure that you have enough to break down any amounts. But I will say this, that's also has to fit within labeling laws you know, government has set aside specific labeling laws and you can't recommend often what I call the therapeutic dose. Okay. And uh, I'm big on therapeutic dosing, dosing for people. And what that means is a person's sensitivity is going to range on that level from zero to 10. And it sounds like this person is closer to the 10 side than they are to the zero side. So I think avoidance of those products is always the first step. Second step is is you want to start with a small amount and take a bunch of capsules. So start at maybe five or six or seven or eight. And if you don't have side effects from it, then you go backwards from that. Try it. So let's say you started at eight capsules, go to seven capsules, go to six capsules, go to five capsules until you know what the dosage is required for you. And that's going back to Linus Pauling's orthomolecular nutrition ideas is you want to take dose up till you get the therapeutic effect. And then you go backwards from that therapeutic amount to find out what is the optimal amount from you. Frankly, um, if people are really serious about this, that's the only way that you're going to determine on an individual basis about how much of a product that you're going to do. We can give a rust, a rough guesstimate, an estimate based on and, and fitting within the label laws, but um, that's what you can do. What I will say, though, is over time, as you use these products, whether it's mass enzymes, whether it's gluten guardian, it seems that your body develops in other words, you become able to process that food. In other words, that your nervous system doesn't flip into an inflammatory response as quickly and dosages tend to go down over time. Usually I recommend that people go 90 days of high dosage of, of working on their microbiome and using enzymes and probiotics and gluten guardian, if that's the case, get their state into an optimal level 
and then you start down regulating your dosage till you get to the effective dose. I find that's the best way uh, for long-term success. So it's very difficult to to operate on an individual basis. There is no quote unquote normal, you know, because my normal is going to be different than my, someone else's normal. As I said, Matt, my business partner, is a keto guy, and I'm a vegetarian. Like we're 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 far at the polar opposites, but we both understand in order to get the most out of our diets, we need to have optimal digestion. Do you think that the reason people can can handle these better later is has to do with their gut microbiome healing? Yes, definitely. Okay. That, that was my hunch. Yes. So for example, I believe that I could be successful on almost any diet. And the reason being is because I've spent so much time, effort, and energy on rebuilding my digestive system. This is the one I choose. I'm not a vigilante vegan or anything like that. Um, you know, And I, I think everybody should choose the diets right for them. But over time, I do believe that if you optimize your digestive health, it increases the choices you have as opposed to decreasing the choices. You can't restrict your way to optimal health. Restriction is something that you do in an acute period of time in order to get to the state that you want. Then you work on, you know, addressing the issues inside your body, whether that's digestive issues or hormonal issues or whatever. And then as your capacity to handle things goes up, you're able to to, to have a little bit more flexibility in your diet. It's just like exercise. Your first day you go to the gym, you work out and you're going, oh, my God, I'm going to die after just a couple sets. And later on, you know, you take a person four or five years down the road, they're doing 25, 35, 45 sets in a workout, bounding through it, come back the next day and they're fine. So, again, your body uh, becomes its function. So restriction is something you do for a period of time till you optimize and then you can increase flexibility. Perfect. So for Michelle's question about she said she wanted to know, won't the end product still be the same? Like she'll still have the sensitivity to wheat products, I guess, but in breaking down the gluten, it'll just be making things better for her. You know, why does a person have, let's, let's break down insensitivity or sense, sensitivity to a product. Sensitivity to a product is what happens is any food that you do not break down, doesn't matter what it is, becomes a potential toxin in the body. Undigested food, not utilized by your body, becomes a toxin and you get what's called an inflammatory response. Protein, uh, inflammatory proteins found in gluten or A1 dairy products, for example, inflammatory milk proteins or whatever, are two of the biggest culprits in today's society. I do believe that's also related to we have been eating those products on mass in an altered state for a long period of time. Therefore, the propensity to have an inflammatory response is higher to those. But I do think a lot of these other foods that are being created today, I think you're going to start reading about like sweetener, like artificial sweeteners. And we're starting to see that its effect on the microbiome or affecting carbohydrate stuff. So all of these new as I call them, frankenfoods that we have introduced into our diets, we're going to see 20 years from now, people having major, major illnesses related to something that maybe someone 20 years ago felt a little off, but was okay. Again, these are passed on generation and your body is innately wisdom. If it's telling you, don't eat this, don't eat it. <laughs> like, you know, like, just don't go there. The thing I often think about with gluten as well is on top of any potential sensitivity to it. I mean, we do see in studies that regardless of if somebody has a predisposed sensitivity to gluten, that gluten itself tends to create what they call leaky gut and instigate the release of zonulin and create intestinal permeability in individuals. So I guess on top of the sensitivity, it can also create that problem with the actual intestinal lining. Yeah. Well, this is this, uh, this goes back to our original conversation where we talked about people having a compromised digestive system and why that is, is herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, um, chemical uh, preservatives, dyes, and chemical agents like glyphosates, which are added into this, which create leaky gut, which creates impermeability, which affects the microbiome, the widespread use of antibiotics, all of those things. So I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are looking at the one thing, and it's a combination of multiple things. 
And that piece, you know, I say if you got a gluten sensitivity that you've discovered, awesome. It's an indication that your digestive system is already severely compromised. This just happens to be the tip over the iceberg. And one of the reasons I think intermittent fasting is so popular today because you are now providing an opportunity to heal the body, um, which is so important, that break that your digestive organs, you know, are able to regenerate and generate the linings and, and, and rebuild itself. And hopefully you're, you're, you're following that in order to do so. And I think that's why it's become so popular. Yeah. And speaking of intermittent fasting, so this is perfect timing. Um, we have some questions from Rosie and actually ties in everything about enzymes, intermittent fasting. So I'll go into those. So Rosie says, hi, Jen and Melanie. I loved episode 84 with Wade Lightheart. I've listened to it twice already. I have a few follow-up questions for the follow-up episode. Okay. So her first question, she says, for people who follow an intermittent fasting lifestyle and provided they actually need the supplements, can you please outline your recommendation on the best time to take probiotics HCL and digestive enzymes relative to our eating window. With such a short eating window, I'm sure many of us are unsure of how to best time these things out for maximum results while still sticking with our fasting regimen. So that's our first question. Great question. Yeah, of course. Uh, especially if you're looking for cellular autophagy, I think this is, which is one of the big benefits for extended. I think if you get into that, you know, that 16 to 18 hour window, particularly if you can get to 18 hours or beyond, I think you're in really good shape. And you, you and during that time, nothing. You, you, there, there's nothing inside of that. So, what you want to do is just before you eat, you take your enzymes. Immediately following eating. You take your hydrochloric acid, and I would say about one hour after your last meal, you would take uh, the P3M probiotics. Where the P3M, what makes that so special is it'll go, it's a, it's a transient strain that goes through the body and cleans up undigested proteins wherever, finds out viruses, bacteria, all these sort of stuff. And so the best time or where it's most active is when you take it after your last meal, that way it'll go in and, and clean everything, clean your house for all night long. It'll start doing work while you're, uh, while you're done um, eating. The other thing is, is now I'll add one caveat to that. Um, for people who have really compromised systems, I have found that they do better if they take dosages of masszymes and P3M throughout the day for a period of maybe three months. And what that will do is that will accelerate the healing components inside their body because any enzyme that's not used in digestion it immediately gets converted into a metabolic enzyme and is used somewhere else in the body. And so the science has demonstrated that People who take, for example, proteolytic enzymes uh, recover from hematomas, injuries, bruising, damages, particularly in strength sports or fighting sports. They recover like three, four, five times faster, depending on what the healing is. Same thing as I found with people who were recovering from illnesses. If I put them on uh, 25, 35 capsules of enzymes a day, which is a lot of masszymes, their healing and recovery happens so much faster than if they didn't do it. Because the whole benefit of fasting, and I got into this because I got into fasting 20 years ago. And I was like, well, why is this beneficial? Well, if you look at uh, healing, uh, health and longevity, people who eat less live longer. Well, why is that? Because they're not using up their enzyme resource pool. And we're not getting enzymes from our diet. And we're not getting probiotics from our diet unless you're really into fermented foods and are consciously doing it. And I'm a big advocate of that. So how do we do that in today's world? Well, we add enzymes, we add probiotics in addition to our diets in order to stabilize that. And so if we want to accelerate results, it comes out to uh, turning up, adding more workers. As we talked about, enzymes and probiotics are the only things that do work in the body. And so if you have more of them, you get more work done. If you have less of them, you get less work done. And so uh, I'm a big advocate of, of high dosing uh, during times of fasting. I've taken up to 100 capsules a day on a fasting protocol. Actually, I, I took 1,000 a couple days just to see if I would get a GI, uh, bust through the GI barrier. Uh, never happened. Um, any other product, you'll do that. You'll get the runs if you hit tolerance. There seems to be no limit to how many enzymes you can take. Obviously, that's very cost prohibitive, but uh, 
I always push things to the extreme and then work backwards from there. I love it. Rosie's second question. She says, again, provided someone actually needs the supplements. Although I guess after our conversation, we could argue that everybody could benefit from enzymes. Um, she says, do they need to be taken forever in order to receive the benefits? For example, with probiotics, is there a sufficient amount of time someone can take the supplement to ensure the good guys have colonized in our gut and then we can stop taking the supplement? And I do remember you said that your probiotic is transient, so I'm guessing you would keep taking it, but what, are, what what's your answer there? Yeah, let's, again, let's go back to history. Um, typical to what's natural to... Um, any species on the planet in their diet is that they eat food in a live state, which gets enzymes that actually break down the food when you consume it. Okay. So whether it's tigers eating zebras, whether it's bears eating fish, whether it's whales eating seals, whether it's horses eating grass, they're eating it in a live enzyme rich state. So I always find the argument that if you're taking enzymes, is it going to alter your, your, your pancreatic production, actually your liver produces it, your pancreas stores the enzymes inside your body. And humans have uh, a pancreas that's just over four times larger than any other species. And because we eat cooked foods, processed foods, foods that are denatured from its natural enzymes and its natural probiotic count. If I was to a farmer 90 years ago or 100 years ago, I'd take a carrot out of the ground, brush off the dirt and eat it. And it has the probiotics also present in that. So, or I would eat fermented foods, which are pervasive in virtually every single culture on the planet that found foods that suited their diets where they would eat that uh, in conjunction to their diet. So the reality is it is natural and normal for us as a species, like any other species to consume enzymes and probiotics in our diet. However, we live in a world that doesn't have them in our diet unless we're actively seeking them out. So, of course, it makes sense to take them. That being said, I do believe um, there is an opportunity to go off them. Um, I, I I go off the product for sometimes during extended fast now that I've got my health in great order. I'll do a fast and I'll do nothing but water for 10 days. And just to just eliminate everything, no herbs, no vitamins, no minerals. I'll do that for 10 days. And then I'll do another fast in the year where I'll take massive amounts of enzymes, massive amounts of probiotics um, and, and, and herbs and things like that to really accelerate the healing process. I prefer the second one. I found I get better results on the second one. But that being said, I do believe there, there may be some benefits that I'm not aware of. And that's why I will take it out of my diet periodically just to experiment. And again, this is me 20 years into my journey in recovery from digestive illnesses. So you can't necessarily take what I'm saying or someone expert saying and, and put it on you. You have to test it yourself and see the results. Um, but I think in today's world, it makes sense to, to, to put some insurance in the body because, uh, you know, all disease starts in, the, starts in the gut. Before I get to Rosie's third question, that made me think I have some personal questions for me um, related to that. I kind of brought this up, I think, on the first episode, but so I, I love taking enzymes. Like, I just love it. I love it during the fast. I find it great for breaking down old proteins and just making me feel really good. I love taking it with food because it helps my digestion so much as far as bloating or GI distress or and bowel movements and all of those things. So I take a lot of enzymes with my food and I, I take so much that I, I really, really digest my food really well now. It's kind of the opposite of the way I used to be. But I do wonder at times if that's, you know, even if I'm having quote normal bowel movements, is there a problem with digesting your food too much? Like, do I need more of that like fibrous bulk and everything to really like, you know, clear out your system in a way. Like I'm wondering if if you could digest things too much, if maybe there's a happy medium or if if that doesn't matter. No, I don't, I don't think it's really an issue. Um, I think if there's one thing that could be an issue is uh, having too much fiber into a diet. So there is a case where people have developed uh, issues where they have too much fiber and they're not breaking, like fiber is very difficult to break down. There's a hemicellulase and cellulase are the products that break it down. So we use um, hemicellulase in our enzyme products, particularly. Uh, some people will benefit from cellulase, some people won't. So depending on the amount of fiber you're eating. So my, for example, me, I eat probably 
10 times the amount of fiber that, say, my business partner eats. He eats almost no fiber because he's on a ketogenic diet. And so uh, what's interesting, I think, as your digestion optimizes over time, you will adjust the amount of dosages that you can you get it too much digestion. I don't think so. Um, what's fascinating, though, is it does change how much food you tend to need. And it does change the frequency of bowel, bowel movements. So you'll go through, oftentimes people will go through a period of adjustment depending on how compromised their system is. And then, and that can be all sorts of healing crises that people will go, could be skin breakouts, could be constipation, could be gas and bloating for a period of time. And then they, because literally there's a war going on inside their systems. And sometimes people associate the war with the problem. And it's actually, no, now you're trying to deal with the problem and the bad guys are fighting back. And that can that can be a very issue. And, and in those cases, that's where you need to have a naturopathic physician. You need to have someone who is right there with you to guide you through that, to see where you are in that journey. You're, you're outside the range of a generalization because we're providing generalized information, as is almost every expert on a podcast or in a TV show or on a dietary recommendation, you, those those particular individual components, you do need the uh, the guidance of an expert who can do, give you real time information. Like I have a naturopathic physician that goes through all my stuff. Uh, we do all my regular testing, so I can tweak things out for me, my diet, and my lifestyle. Can I go back to one thing that you said that I want to? Because um, it's thought I was having about the enzymes over time between the last episode and this one. You said that this changes how much food you need. Can you dig into that for me? Like, are you, you, do you need less food because you're digesting it so much better? Is your body going to process it more? Should you eat less? If I, I, that, you know, if that makes sense where I'm coming from with this question. Yeah, I think over time, I think what over time, what I've noticed uh, for people who use, um, you can get their digestion optimized, they do eat less. You just simply do not eat food. Like I have, when I first started fasting, or go back in time, when I first started doing one day of fasting, I thought I was going to die. You know, I mean, it was, this was like terrifying. I had to go through a whole day and I, and I would feel tired. I would feel de-energized. Uh, now, like I, I just drove from Vancouver to California, two days of driving. I didn't eat the entire trip. Didn't eat. Didn't feel, didn't feel bad. Didn't feel like I'm so nutrified in my body. I can go a week, no problem without eating. I mean, there is a tactile desire or an olfactory desire. Like my sensory organs wants to eat food, but I don't actually need it. And for people who have a compromised digestive system, they start feeling hungry a few hours after eating. And that's a good sign that you need some help because it shouldn't. The the process of eating should activate hunger, not the need for it. And that's something that I think few people really have experienced. So, yes, you will eat less over okay. time. It just makes sense because you're utilizing the nutrients better from your food. Right. So, And people really don't get that. You just said it, but it, it's so key. People don't understand that our bodies don't count calories. They're searching for nutrients. So if you're not giving your body nutrients or your body can't assimilate the nutrients from your food, you're going to have constant hunger because your body's like, yeah, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. Send down something else. And so you're eating and eating and eating and never getting the nutrients that your body needs. And I think that's that's important. People who like suffer from not being able to stop, their body is telling you, hey, I need more nutrients. Well, and you know what happened, and let's go. Let's go back in time again. There's a there's a great book by Eric Schlosser called uh, Fast Food Nation, and in the seventies, and yeah, and in the seventies, what happened is the development of food science technology, and what I believe emerged out of that was creating chemical compounds that tricks the brain into thinking it's getting the nutrients required. But it, when it consumes that chemical agent, it thinks it's this mineral or that vitamin or whatever. And, of course, it doesn't have that. So what does it do again? It craves that food again because they found it's easier to sell you more of the product that you're already buying than it is to get you hooked on a new product. Or, and, and so this science developed and it become very, very sophisticated. And you, now you're dealing with 
you know, when you eat uh, a lot of the processed foods that people are consuming today, like you open up a bag of chips and you have one of those chips, you know, go ahead, see if you can stop eating those. Um, I always say, take an experiment. Here's a great experiment for you. And there's also watching television or computers while you're eating. There's a great experiment I, I recommend people do. We all go to the movie theater and popcorn is very popular. You know, you get these super giant bags of popcorn. Well, there's two things you can do. Number one, go to the movie, sit in the back row, make sure it's a movie you're not that interested, and watch people when they eat. So the tension builds up in the movie. And as soon as they create the relief and the tension, people then dig into their food and eat. And it's it's like the whole thing is like a timed ritualistic component, the, the emotional components. So that's one thing to watch. Fascinating. Second thing, go into the movie theater, buy the big popcorn, go out onto the street, sit there without a movie playing, without watching your phone, without doing anything of that, and see if you can eat the bag of popcorn. Probably can't. And why is that? Because your body's going to tell you that I don't need that big giant bag of popcorn. I don't need these chemicals. But in that environment where I'm getting manipulated emotionally, well, that's what we're buying. We're, we want to go on an emotional ride. I'm now eating related to that stress. And now I'm anchoring associations of food consumption, video per, and, and sensory stimulation. And so I'm being commanded and associating emotions, feeding and food. And now I've become addicted to that whole cocktail to the point that it becomes almost impossible to go to the movie theater to, without eating. It's almost impossible to sit down and watch the football game without having whatever the traditional thing is. It is almost impossible to go to the social occasion without Thanksgiving dinner or without the Christmas thing. So these are ankled into the social and sensory stimuli of our entire culture. And you have to recognize, and that's not a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. I'm just saying these are things that it's important to become aware of if you really want to turn your, get your senses working for you instead of against you. So this would be like the person who has trouble binge eating in front of the TV at night because it's all just connected. Absolutely. So just stop eating in front of the TV and go in another room and do something else. That that's exactly what it has to come down to. And I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people. You put me in front of a football game. You put me into a movie theater. I will consume way more food than I ever needed. And I'm enjoying it. And I'm getting I'm a, acutely aware of the chemical dumps I'm getting in my brain, the desire for foods I wouldn't normally eat, all that sort of stuff. Because it's so anchored so deeply into my into my psyche and my social habits that it's almost impossible to break unless I consciously do it. Yeah, I'm super guilty as well. My thing is I'm always I'm really bad about like researching while eating. I do my long one meal a day meal. I munch on all these things and I do all my research. And I have <laughs> I should work on this more, but you know, every now and then I'll do my experiment where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to eat. I'm not going to research. I'm going to turn everything off. And it's really, really interesting that the epiphanies you have about yourself, because when you're just sitting there not doing anything else, I mean, there's no reason to sit there and just munch on fruit for hours. <laughs> you know, like you, you want to stop and you realize how much it is cue driven. It also reminds me of the, um, the, the, the stale popcorn study they did where they had, they had participants in movie theaters. I've seen that yeah. One. Basically yeah. they found that people who like eating popcorn in movie theaters will just as easily eat completely stale two week year, two week old popcorn like the whole thing um if they're watching a movie like if they're in that environment but if they put them outside of an environment and have them come to i think in this experiment instead of a movie theater they went and watched like a music video in a lecture room and then they didn't eat the stale popcorn the same way that they would in a movie theater yeah so Rosie does have one more last question. She says, does taking any of these gut-supporting supplements interfere with the action of other vitamins and medications? If so, how should one plan to take, how should one plan to time the taking of vitamins and medications with the gut-supporting supplements? Again, it's the same concern since we have a short eating window. So timing is important. Yeah, for uh, enzymes and uh, 
so you know the chain of breaking down or assimilating your nutrients is enzymes to get your proteins, proteins to get your minerals, minerals to get your vitamins. So for the most part, as far as taking nutrients in your body that require enzymes are going to enhance that process. Can there be contraindications with medications that you are taking? Absolutely. And you should definitely check with your medical doctor um, to see if there's any contraindications between uh, taking, you know, proteolytic enzymes or that sort of stuff with the medications that you're taking, because they are, uh, these are extremely powerful products that can, you know, uh, in the wrong situations, you know, people with gastritis, uh, people with ulcers definitely want to avoid uh, using the products because uh, the particular, the mass enzyme, mass enzymes, because of um, it's proteolytic and can start, you know, doing things that you don't want your body to, to be doing. And for listeners, I will direct you, you can go to the Buy Optimizers website and you guys have a pretty good customer support team there. So if you have any questions specifically, I'm, you can definitely go to that website, ask your question there and they can help you out. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes at ifpodcast.com slash episode 87. And so we have a, a fun, speaking of the probiotics, we have a fun question about that. And this one comes from Jennifer. She says, I've loved your podcast for the past year and especially enjoyed episode 84 with Wade Lightheart. I have a question for a follow-up episode. And then she goes into her history, but basically she has strep throat. She had a lot of antibiotics, a major onslaught on her gut. And she says, because of the antibiotic onslaught, onslaught I've taken probiotics and I try to take good ones e.g. the expensive ones in the refrigerator with 20 kabillion plus live cultures, but I feel confused. There is so much out there that says probiotics are bunk, and even after listening to the podcast, it seems that on one side, we are, we are all special microbiome snowflakes that need to poop in a cup and do individual gut mapping to determine something. On the other hand, there are all these one-size-fits-all fits products. Even the P3OM is one product for everyone. It's not like we can get prescription probiotics made just for us. So do I need a probiotic made just for me? Do I, do I need to poop in a cup before I can figure out what probiotic to buy? She says, keeping it classy, Jennifer. I love that question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great uh, question. Well, let, let me go to my own history. Um, we didn't have the technology available that we do today when I had to correct my own gut health, you know, I told you the, I went from Mr. Universe to Mr. Marshmallow, gained 42 pounds of fat and water, found a doctor and he helped me rebuild my health without the guide, without all that, without all that information. I just did it by biofeedback, trial and error and working it out. And that's always a way. The, the advantages of poop tests and these type of things is that you can get targeted, you can get results and you can get things faster than you could. Um, they are no, in my opinion, they are still um, no exception or better than your own intuitive awareness by paying attention to what's going on in your own life, writing down. I think the greatest scientist is right between your ears, and then that should be your number one authority. If you feel good, if you don't feel good, let that be your guide get a professional to provide you insight to that, to what that might be or what course of action. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to you. You're in charge of your health. You can't have a doctor measuring your poop every time or you're and, and customizing a specific probiotic to yourself. I do believe that we will um, get to that point. I, I, I think within maybe 10, 15 years, I do see customized formulations with the proper prebiotic, probiotic based on the dietary and social habits. It's particular. I, I do believe that will happen. I think we will get customizing. We're not there yet. Um, and that's why we developed P3OM as a probiotic that goes off and wipes out the bad guys. Hopefully your diet will address colonization um, through the right fermented foods with the right prebiotic and postbiotic because that's the big issue with probiotics. Um, they will not survive unless they have the right amount of prebiotics and postbiotics and that they're not competing with other strains. And that's why we went with a single strain and a transient strain and so that. So I know that might sound a roundabout confusing answer to her question. But um, again, if you're following the intermittent podcasting, you're probably in time restricted eating. You're probably used to restriction in your life. And that gives you a big advantage in the aspect that you can start to specifically track the foods that work for you, the probiotics that work for you. And, and, you know, and that, that's all you need to know. I mean, 
really essentially unless you're out there advocating health for uh, hundreds or thousands of people like you guys are tune in yourself and uh that'll take care of things yeah that's what we say pay attention to your body and intermittent fasting will help you figure it out over time yeah and you know that's probably one of the advantages i had in my bodybuilding history i had my coach scott abel who who literally i had to turn in my journals every two weeks to him uh, about how I feel, my moods, the food, energy, all that sort of stuff. And during that process, I got acutely aware of my health. The second thing, taking my body fat down to such an extremely low level uh, amplified the effects of everything. And staying there for an extended period of time really made me tune into all the different foods and how they were affecting me or how I felt. So I've 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 had some experiences in life that give me distinct advantages that other people might not experience. So um, that's another caveat as well to come with that. So after our last conversation, I started dosing up the P3OM personally, and I saw very significant changes. And my I have a problem with like bloating and things like that. And I saw it was pretty interesting that I definitely saw definite results from that. But like you said. Definitely have to try different things, see what worked for you. And we do love intermittent fasting because it does make you so in tune with your body and how you're reacting to things. And so another topic to jump on, and this involves, and this I'm glad we got questions about this because this is something else I've personally been wondering, and it's around the role of bile. And um, so we have a few questions from a few different people, but so Sarah, for example, she actually has a question earlier that we already addressed about um, enzyme supplements, but then she also says, I think Wade spoke about lipase being an issue for some people, and I wonder if that could be an issue with me, with my skin problems, um, and my issues with some kinds of fats and oils. I no longer have a gallbladder, but I still feel ill if I eat oily foods. Are enzymes involved in gallbladder function and fat digestion? And then we also had a question from A., so I'm not sure what his first name is, um, but he says, hi, Melanie and Jen. I recently discovered your podcast and I love it. I have a follow-up question for Wade Lightheart. The question is, is it safe to supplement with, and this is about HCL, but he says, is it safe to supplement with HCL without improving the liver's bile, bile flow? He talks about how he read a book called Kick Your Fat in the Nuts by TC, by TC Hale, um, he said he didn't have high expectations for the book. It's a diet book written. It's a diet book written by a stand-up comedian, and I only read it because it was free as part of my Kindle Unlimited subscription. But it did clue me into the connection between impaired digestion and obesity. And he says that in that book, it was recommended to take enzymes and HCL, like Wade recommends, but it also recommends beet tops to improve the body's bile flow. And that this author actually cautioned against HCL without the beets saying, quote, I never allow any of my clients to use HCL unless they are also using beet flow. If you don't have your bile flowing correctly and you add more acid into the stomach, it will create a duodenal ulcer of diarrhea issues. And then later in the book, he says the extra acid from the HCL needs to be neutralized by bile when it reaches the duodenum and the recommended supplement ensures that there's enough bile to do the job. So bile. Is it affected by enzymes? Is it affected by HCL? What is the role of, of bile and everything? Well, you know, I think this um, person has done some good research. And one of the reasons when we created HCL, we call it HCL breakthrough, is when, and we talked about this in the digestive component, when HCL, um, first off, the average 40-year-old probably is making less than 30% of the HCL they started originally. The first the first dysfunction is not having a diet that supports HCL production, also not hydrating properly that allows you to produce enough HCL, and then the aging process, all the foods that kind of accelerate degeneration inside the body. Um, so adding these agents that can improve bile flow, I'm all for that. That's that's a great idea. I, I always say you can't supplement your way out of a bad diet, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you, you can't. Supplements are designed to augment uh, physiological conditions if they're really good ones and to enhance the process, but it's still no, it's not a fix for eating garbage. 
Um, you know, and so adding that in is great. But when we produce HCL breakthrough, I was aware that a lot of people don't have enough mineral content in your body. It's called bicarbonate buffers, particularly the minerals that will buffer the acids coming out of the intestinal tract. And that's why we added the enzymes as cofactors, as well as a host of bicarbonate buffer minerals in order to buffer the acids so that you would not get one of those ulcerous conditions, even if you were mineral deficient. We also produce a mineral product called Primergen, uh, Primergen Vita- uh, Minerals and Primergen Vitamins, which is a liquid-based uh, trace mineral supplementation to help augment people's mineral deficiencies, which are pretty much everybody I know of is mineral deficient, like massively. Particularly, I also think that people ought to, the great way to start is getting um, all the different magnesiums inside their diet. Most people, especially if you suffer from insomnia um, or sensitivity to caffeine, particularly, start doing high dosages of magnesium uh, for a period of three to five months, three to six, three to six months, and you'll see major corrections in that. The amount of magnesium. <laughs> so I have ionic magnesium, topical magnesium, natural calm, which is magnesium citrate, um, and then magnesium three or eight, which crosses the blood brain barrier. Magnesium and I are, are friends. <laughs> it's an underrated product. I think, um, taking really high dosages of magnesium is fantastic for uh, health because we're so, we're so magnesium deficient. And I do believe this is one of the reasons why so many people crave chocolate for the magnesium, for the magnesium. Cause they're so magnesium deficient. Although I will put in a little caveat here. Be careful because Certain forms of magnesium, if you overdo them, will cause you to spend a lot of time in the bathroom. Yeah, that's a, well, again, <laughs> anytime, anytime that's, you that's break how, yeah. the GI barrier. Yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah. called breaking the GI barrier, which was the foundational component of orthomolecular nutrition, starting with Linus Pauling, where they would dose up people with vitamin C to high levels, and then they would cut back. And I've used that protocol on a variety of nutrients, and it's very effective way of 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 systematically eliminating deficiencies. Yep. But magnesium specifically, I take magnesium at bedtime every night. And one day I couldn't remember if I'd taken it. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently I took it again. And the next morning I realized, yes, I did actually (laughs) take it twice. (laughs) So be aware. Don't do that before like your big meeting. The the misadventures of biohackers. There you go. There you go. Do not experiment with magnesium the day before you have to go somewhere important. (laughs) Or the topical magnesium is fascinating because if you're magnesium deficient, it stings on your skin because your skin is sucking it in so fast that it's, it can be a very interesting experience for sure. I do have another question about the bile just while we're talking about it because I am always I've, – I've researched this so much and I cannot find a, a definitive answer about it. So, so bile is created by the gallbladder rather than like the pancreas with the enzymes. So – supplementing with bile, does that, like ox bile, for example, um, I don't know if you've ever, if you supplement with ox bile or anything like that, um, do you think that's only something we would need to do if we don't have a gallbladder or can we benefit from it if we do have a gallbladder? And does supplementing with bile, does it make bile store up in your gallbladder? Like, would it make your body not naturally flush its own bile? I'm, I'm really curious about the whole bile story. You know, there's... I know there are a lot of opinions on this. What What is your opinion? <laughs> Here's my opinion is, I think there is an, a significant number of people out there that do benefit from taking ox bile. I mean, the evidence is, I've, I've had hundreds of people that write, wrote me and said that they take ox bile and they feel better. And, and, and so who am I to argue with that? I'm like, if you're taking, I don't care if you're taking whatever and you're feeling a definitive benefits, have at it. You do not need someone like me telling you not to do it. Um, I personally believe that I have found most of our clients have been able to solve 99, and I would say 99% of the people solve their digestive issues using enzymes, HCL, and, and, and probiotics along with a healthy diet. Almost everybody. That being said, there are those one percenters that for their lifestyle, their genetic history, their epigenetics, their physiology, whatever, that are going to benefit from these products. And that's why 
we get these what I call silly arguments of people talking about, you know, this is better than that's better. And going back to, you know, me and my business partner, he's a keto guy. I'm a vegetarian guy. I find that's a strength, not a weakness. That's the diet that he suits best for him. This is the diet suits best for me. And we go back and forth in discussions about things he discovers and things I discover to kind of, hey, well, let's let's get an intelligent conversation about it. So I, I don't know to be I don't know the answer to that question, because I think that it's not possible to answer the question definitively because you're trying to create a definitive a definitive answer for the human race. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, there's people that have taken some of our products and haven't felt good about it for whatever reason. Does that mean that I should just hammer them and say, take some more of our products? I say, no, get your money back. You just take the product back, go to your ND, take the money, go spend it on your ND and find out what the hell's going on with you and, and fix it and get that. And so um, that's why we we give money back guarantees. That's why we add extra products. If something they take didn't work, we give them a, a free product that we think if they, we have a conversation with them to try to see if they picked the wrong product because it is your money. It is your health. We can't solve every problem out there, but we can solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. And that's what we focus on. And we remove the risk if you don't fit in that category. I love that. The fact that there's not a one size fits all way to do it. That's just, that's, that's the best because you could, you could say that there is because you want everyone to try this product and everyone needs to do it this way, but you realize that that's not true. Yeah. I mean, there's people on the planet that are breatharians. They don't eat any food. They break all the rules of physiology. There are people on this planet that don't eat any water either. They break all the the rules of physiology. Somehow they found a way to live on air or breathing. And there are people who can stop breathing and still live. You know, that this is proven, documented history through Asian cultures. The Kumbamila, they bury people underground. They live there for three or four days in the dirt and they bring them back up and they're living and breathing and they've developed a way to do that. So we do not, as a species, understand all of the components and all the information that we provide enthusiastically is within a, a window of our own experience and what we're able to help people with. But it's not the definitive be all end all absolute absolute. Uh, we change. We live in a changing, evolving universe, and and that's just the way it is. 